And uh, the rest of you can open up your Bibles. I hope you have your Bibles with you to uh, John 3. Now, I'm going to read the scripture this morning. I wanted to make a couple comments about this. I want to encourage you as Jerusalem Church to bring your own Bibles to church. Now, this kind of sounds archaic, doesn't it? But there are reasons that I would ask you to bring your own Bible to church. Um, Hopefully, throughout the week, you're studying your own Bible. And this is a used book throughout the week. It it does um, you no good in a sense if it's just sitting up on there. So one, study your own personal Bible. So you should have a relationship with this thing. I remember you. I read you through the week. All right? It should be your friend. Also, seeing it helps you think it through. See it. Open up. Look at the words. That's why we have things reading along. All right? And then as I preach, what I hope is happening out there, which I can't necessarily control, is that your Bibles are open and you're tracking with me verse to verse as I preach. Seeing it helps you. Keep your Bibles open. Also, mark up your own Bible. Now, I wouldn't be extremely offended if you marked the few Bibles up. And uh, if you're a guest with us and you're like, I don't have a Bible, well, then just grab that one and keep it. All right? It's our gift to you. But, but uh, bring your Bible so you can mark up and make notes. Because years down the road, you can look back and see notes that you've made and remember certain things. And uh, it can help you learn it better. Um, and it helps you to be an active listener. This is an act of worship to listen to the scripture and to respond in your heart with yes, yes, yes. So that's how you can worship by listening to the Bible read, all right? This is part of worship. So let's turn to uh, John 3. We're going to read verses 16 through verse 21. Follow along, hopefully in your Bible, but if not, maybe next week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God bless the reading of his word. We're going to Spend time today in um, John 3.16. That's one verse for this Sunday. And uh, what I want you to do is just keep your Bible open and keep referring back. Keep glancing uh, to this wonderful passage of Scripture. Well, Christina and I are Pittsburgh Steeler fans, even if they're two and five. We're still fans. We're still fans. Thank you in the back. <laughs> um, yeah, it was an ugly Raiders game. But anyway... But during one epic moment of January 8, 2012, my affinity changed momentarily. Remember that date. Back in 2009, the Florida Gators defeated the Oklahoma Sooners in the BCS championship game where Tim Tebow, the Christian quarterback of the Gators at the time, wrote John 3.16 on his eye black uh, during the game. 
Even the statue of Tebow outside of the Gators Stadium has etched in the statue, John 3.16, on his uh, eye black. Now, we've seen John 3.16 signs everywhere. Baseball games, bumper stickers, billboards, t-shirts, coffee mugs. It's a really popular verse. It's probably the most famous verse in all of the scripture. But, do people really know how it applies to them? How John 3.16 has a whole lot to do with every single person on this planet and every single person in the history of the world. Now, back to January 8, 2012. The Steelers met the Broncos in Denver in an AFC wildcard game. On the first snap of overtime, it is tied 23-23. Tim Tebow hits Demarius Thomas with a pass across the middle, and he went for an 80-yard touchdown to win the game. Steelers lose. Now, I was watching the game at that time with our youth group, Bunch of Steeler fans everywhere erupted in cheering for Tim Tebow, and I was one of them. Uh, It was one of the most amazing things that I've seen, and at that moment, who cares about the Steelers? Go Timmy. That was awesome what you just did. It was an unbelievable moment. Now, guess how many passing yards Tim Tebow had in that game? 316. Guess what the average yards per pass was? 31.6. The TV ratings in overtime peaked at 31.6% of U.S. households. The only interception of the game was thrown by Ben Roethlisberger on third and 16. The Steelers even possessed the ball for 31 minutes and 6 seconds. They have nicknamed the game 316, the 316 game. A bit after the game, John 316 was the number one search on Google. There was a buzz around John 316, and the following Sunday when the Broncos played the Patriots, pitiful game for the Broncos, Patriots are awesome, um, Focus on the Family aired a commercial right during the game. This is the commercial. Can we bring that up? Is it working? We were having problems with it earlier, so hopefully you can see it. For God so loved the world, the whole world, everyone, anyone, that a lot of people, that he gave his one and only son, his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. (laughs) That showed on national television during the game. When John 3.16 was getting massive internet hits, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association set up a website explaining John 3.16 and claimed that 170 people were saved through it. There is no doubt that John 3.16 is famous and it is powerful. And there is no doubt that millions of people completely miss why it's important for them. They just overlook it. I want God to open up this verse for us this morning so we marvel at its depth and its power and its beauty. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it all begins with God. 
You see, John 3.16 assumes the existence of God. Creation itself defends the existence of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the fine-tuning of the universe shows His design. We can clearly see His eternal power and divine nature in what He has made. He has made Himself plain, very plain from the very beginning. But God has also communicated with us directly through His Word. And he has told us what he is like. The Apostle John wrote twice in 1 John 4, God is love. A beautiful oil painting is an expression of the character of the painter, a dim reflection of the greater glory of the painter himself. You see, without God, love and beauty don't make sense. They flat out don't make sense. When you experience real selfless love from other people, It reflects a greater reality of love, the transcendent and superior love of God. Darwinism, evolution, the survival of the fittest leave us no logical explanation for love whatsoever. Humanity was made in the image of God and therefore capable of relationship and love and that reality points us beyond ourselves to a greater reality of love in God. God exists and he is love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The only way for John 3.16 to work is if at the very nature of God is love. And because God's nature is love, he exercises love. God is so good that he showcases his glory through loving people. God loves the world. God loves the world. Now, theologians had vigorously debated verse 16. There are people that view it from all different kinds of angles. It's a beautiful verse. It's a powerful verse. It's a summary of the gospel. However, it does provoke certain questions uh, of it. All right? Does God actually love everyone? When Psalm 5, 4 says God hates all evildoers, Does God love everyone the same way? If God loves everyone the same way, why do some people still go to hell for eternity? If God does not love everyone the same way, how can he still be a God of love? What does world mean? That one's been debated. A bunch of questions arrive, and I think that there are really good answers to these questions from the Scripture, from when we take it all together. So let's begin with God's love and then move into the meaning of world in John 3.16. And after I finish, I hope that you enjoy this verse with a renewed enthusiasm, that it becomes more than just a traditional famous verse, but that you go deeper into it and that it, it, it really encourages you and it really strengthens your faith. That's what I hope happens. First, God's love. Does God love everyone? Well, the Bible seems to answer with yes and no. Because God does not love everyone in the same way. Now, that might surprise you to hear God doesn't love everyone in the same way. Um, But God has a general or a generic love for everyone and a unique and particular love for his chosen people. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. I have a bunch of female friends. Uh, that I have great respect for. Amber Stites, Deb McKinney, Kristen Yealy, Jen Liberatory, Emily Unverzat, lots of different female friends, and they're very dear friends. I would say I love these sisters. 
They are very special to me. But I love Christina uniquely. Uniquely. My love for my bride is exclusive and it's more intimate. I love the others, but not in the same distinctive way that I love my own wife. Now remember, Ephesians 5 talks about the church as the what of Christ? The bride of Christ. He loved her uniquely and gave himself up for her. So who enjoys fellowship with God through union with Christ? His bride. His bride. No one else has that type of relationship. This should not surprise us. God has a common love for mankind. He displays his love through common blessings. So we ask, do atheists eat warm, delicious bread right out of the oven? Do they eat uh, fantastic cuisine and, and savor sweet wine and experience the blessings of life? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Why do they experience these things? Because God's loving hand chooses to bless them with these common blessings. Not because they love Him, not because they deserve His love, but because God is love. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. To a certain extent, God is good to absolutely everyone throughout history. He does send the warmth and beauty of the sun and the refreshing rain to even those who hate him, as Matthew 5 tells us. But the dam of his judgment will one day let loose. All who reject him will perish. But he loves now, nonetheless. God loves everyone through his son, Jesus. Follow my logic here. Jesus is fully God. He is God. And he fulfilled the law perfectly. He loved God perfectly and he loved others perfectly. Even his enemies. So if Jesus would have failed to love his enemies perfectly, he would have failed to fulfill the entire law. But he didn't. He did exactly what his father asked him to do. I want you to love your enemy as yourself. And so as a human being, God in the flesh, Jesus loves everyone, even those who rejected him. But his love for his enemies is not synonymous with saving love because not all of his enemies are saved, nor will they be saved. Now, where am I getting this biblically? In Mark 10, Jesus had a discussion with a really rich young man who wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. Jesus knew this guy's heart, and he knew that deep down, he loved money more than he loved God. Jesus knew it. So Mark 10, 21 says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. And Jesus then tells the man to sell all of his possessions and to give his possessions to the poor. And when the man hears this, this is how he responds. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The rich young man kept his money and rejected Jesus Christ. He turned his back on God because God wasn't good enough and he wanted his money more. He didn't believe and yet Jesus loved him. The love Jesus had for him was not the same as the love he has for those who know him, for those who follow him, but he loves this man and others nonetheless. 
Now, isn't there a distinction between God's enemies who experience his judgment and his children that experience his saving grace? Isn't there a difference there? I think you'll see that all throughout the scripture. So when John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, I think it means God's general love for all of mankind. It's real. It's extravagant love that sends out massive blessings and an invitation to everyone to repent and believe, an invitation to come through Jesus Christ to a father who loves his children particularly. That's what I think love means in verse 16. But there is a greater love than John 3.16. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 is just one example from Scripture of the greater love that God has for His children, a love that extends further than the universal invitation. Here's, here are the verses. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. All right, notice that love motivates predestination and adoption. Love is the motivation behind it. Psalm 103 verse 13 explains it this way, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. To those who fear him, he shows compassion. That is a special relationship. Even John, uh, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the father has given to us. When you hear us or we in the scripture, you have to ask who is being addressed there. And in much of the New Testament, who's being addressed are the people of God, the children of God, those that God has set his love upon. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are to be chosen, to be a chosen, adopted child of God is to be uniquely loved by God. All throughout the Bible, we see a particular love that God has for his adopted children, for his people. God loves every person generally, absolutely, yet he loves his own adopted children with his fatherly love. And so I think the love of God for the world in verse 16 is a generic, general, universal love for all of humanity. But then the question comes, who is the world? Who is the world? And as with many other words, world can have different meanings. Now, this, this I found interesting. A good example is the English verb to, to run, to run. It's a simple word, but it's a diverse word with no fewer than 179 different uh, definitions on dictionary.com. A massively diverse word, though simple. It could mean to rapidly move your legs or to act quickly or to even like bowl over something, or to roll over it. Lots of different meanings. So what determines the meaning of a word? Context, how the word is used. That will determine the meaning. And as, as we learned in seminary, context is king. You have to always read things within their context to give you a better understanding of what it means. So how is world being used in verse 16? That's the question. Well, just before verse 16, Jesus was talking with, Nicodemus, a Jew, Um, a devout Jewish teacher, a Pharisee, a powerful ruler among the Sanhedrin, and a man that believed that the Messiah would come to the Jews and to judge all the other nations, okay? Uh, There was a certain ethnocentrism among the Jews. They considered themselves better than all the rest of the nations, the Gentiles. 
It could have been called racism. And now some scholars believe that the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus actually stopped in verse 15. And that John 3.16 is the Apostle John's follow-up thoughts. Other scholars believe John 3.16 is a continuation of the conversation. I don't know. If you have the red-letter Bible, John 3.16 is in red letters. And so I'm prone to lean that this is a continuation of, of the conversation, though there are good arguments on the other side. Now, it would have shocked Nicodemus to hear that God loved the world God loved the other nations and not just the Jews? I mean, this just would have been earth-shattering to Nicodemus. And even if the conversation stopped in verse 15, the context so far is still Jews and Gentiles. And so it still fits. God's love is not just for Jews, it's for everyone. God loves everyone who is lost, even Gentiles. Jesus was a gift to the world, and his life, death, and resurrection brings certain blessings for everyone, even the enemies of God. The gospel is really open to everyone. It's a call to come to Christ, to everyone. This was an incredible statement for Jesus to make to Nicodemus. God loves all mankind, and his love has nothing to do with ethnicity, nothing to do with origin, nothing to do with color. It has to do with the expression of God's character of love upon all that he has made. All throughout the book of John are sections that communicate God's redemptive plan for the nations. For the nations. God saves the nations. This is what verse 16 is saying. God loves the world. God loves Jews. God loves Greeks, Romans, Europeans, Americans, Africans, Asians. God loves everyone but clearly not in the same way. Not in the same way. As followers of Jesus, we are calling people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find themselves loved uniquely by God the Father. But until they trust Christ, they are an enemy of God and under his judgment. Whoever believes in him should not perish, meaning those who don't believe will perish and will be under his judgment. Only those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ are particularly loved by God and therefore saved. And John 3.16 also demonstrates the extent that God loves the world. We're told that he loves the world. Then we're going to be told the extent to which he loves the world. John MacArthur preached this. The extent of his love is measured by the extent of his gift. Think about that deeply. God loves the world with immeasurable extent. For God so loved the world. That word so communicates two things. One, the way that God loves, and two, the extent of God's love. The way he loved was by giving his only son. For God in this way loved the world that he gave his only son. The giving was the expression of his divine love. The extent of his love was revealed in the value of the gift that he gave, the treasure, what he valued the most. In other words, I loved you so much that I gave to you what was most precious to me. God has one begotten son, one, and he really, really, really loves 
the Son. The extent of God's love is immeasurable because the worth of the Son is immeasurable. Jesus is infinitely precious, infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious, and yet God lovingly gave him up to the world. Paul said in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus is preeminent in everything. Jesus is first place. He takes second to none. He is the most valuable being in the universe, a gift worth more than anything else, God's preeminent gift, and God gave him. Now, how did God love the world? He gave his one son, his only begotten, his unique and exceptional son to visit us. That is how far God went to express his love to us by giving us the son. And though it was a great, great gift that Jesus came, it's even greater to understand why he came. The father gave his son to die. To die for his chosen people, to die for undeserving sinners, he was providing eternal life in his son. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then in the next verse, John continues, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the atoning sacrifice, to die in the place of sinners on that cross, that anyone who believes in him will be reconciled to God, that anyone who believes in him will have the full wrath of God turned away from them because it was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. God designed the plan He purposed his son to die. Luke wrote, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. How is he going to save the lost if he doesn't go to the cross for the lost? He's talking about death for the salvation of God's people. God loves the world so much that he sent his only son to come and seek out and save those who were lost, providing eternal life to everyone who believes. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for who? His friends. His friends. What greater expression can you turn to or find in the universe to express love more than Christ? Now, there are some things that you just can't put a price tag on. The life of your kids, your grandkids, a healthy marriage, Health and vitality, time. How do you put a price tag on these things? But something surpasses all of these things in worth. The life of God's son. David wrote, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. And your steadfast love is better than life. Not even our own lives compare to the eternal worth of Jesus Christ being given to us. There is nothing, church, that we are going to find and go out there to look for that beats out the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. It is a futile search. So many people are locked into this lie that there's something out there beyond, and each time they get that next thing, they just come up short, and they say, this isn't working, this isn't what I thought that it would be, and that's because at the end stands Jesus Christ. He is the greatest value of the universe. God's invitation to come to Jesus is a vast expression of a vast love. God loves the world with immeasurable extent 
through the gospel invitation. John 3.16 calls everyone to respond in faith. It's calling to you. Believe. Believe. You won't perish. Believe. You'll have eternal life. Just believe. Just give your life to Christ. Just trust Him. You won't ever perish. You will live eternally. God obviously knows that not everyone will believe, but He still lovingly invites them nonetheless. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel is God's loving plea to sinners. Some will believe and be saved, and some will not believe and perish. Some will experience everlasting joy in God. Some will experience everlasting suffering under the judgment of God. But God invites them all. Come, come. And he invites them through the gospel. Verse 16 is linked to verse 15, 14 and 15 by this little word, for. For God so loved the world. Verse 14 and 15 is basically the Son of Man was crucified on the cross to reflect that serpent in the wilderness that was lifted up, giving healing to everyone who would look. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life. For, insert verse 16. God so loved the world. He loved them so much that he gave his only son to die so that faith and eternal life was made possible for God's people. This is the entire point of the book of John. Believe. Believe. Those who believe have eternal life and those who choose not to believe will perish forever. Everyone exists eternally. But but not everyone will live eternally. To perish is not to cease to exist. It's not annihilationism. But to exist under the wrath of God forever, an unbearable penalty. Paul tells us about this judgment in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 9. Paul says Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire and that he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal Destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. To perish is not to be finally destroyed. That would be a misunderstanding of the text. But to suffer un- excuse me, <clears throat> unending punishment and destruction away from the glorious presence of God. Hell is real and hell is forever. So believe. So believe. That's the message of John 3.16. I read something this week that just struck me. Sometimes you read things that you're like, wow, that's absolutely true. John MacArthur preached this. You're going to be sent to hell not for something you did, but for what you didn't do, and that's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought about that. I was like, is that true? Because I've done a lot of nasty things that condemn me but that's the message of grace contained in john 3 16 no matter what you did if you come in faith to jesus christ it is all wiped away you have lavish grace you have lavish love from god upon you you just need to come you just need to believe and trust that's not why people go to hell because it can be erased It can be forgiven. It was paid for in the cross if you believe. What condemns people to hell is when they look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, that is not good enough for me. 
I need something more. That's not going to take care of what, and and that can be in arrogant ways and in like self-pity ways, like Jesus can't pay for my sin and we kick ourselves around. That's just the same as saying, I don't need Jesus because I got my own way of salvation. I'm pursuing my own goals. That's why people go to hell. They turn away from Jesus. They don't believe in him. They prefer God's eternal wrath over eternal life. But faith is the key to eternal joy in God. According to John 3.16, whoever, whoever would simply believe would be given eternal life, eternal joy, eternal happiness, eternal bliss, eternal pleasure in God. And eternal life is not just length of life, it's the quality of life. Can we get that in our heads? It's the quality of life. Eternal life is knowing God and his son Jesus so intimately that you are forever satisfied with joy and complete euphoric wholeness. Eternal life is the best life. And we have life now in Christ as we follow him. And we will have life in full in our glorified future state. We taste heaven now when we follow Christ under the direction of the Holy Spirit in union with each other all right? But the fullness of this life is in the future. People don't follow Jesus because they believe deep down that there is another more fulfilling, exciting life to live somewhere. But how far from the truth that is. Jesus said to Martha after the death of her brother Lazarus in a really tender moment, I am the life. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asks her. What else could we live for that can promise us that though we will die, yet shall we live? There's nothing else out there, folks. This is it. This is the corner of the market. This is the monopoly on eternal life. It's Jesus So I ask you today, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Having an elegant dinner with friends is so enjoyable. I love to dine with friends, especially when they're they're just those friends that you just connect with and then you have great conversation and, and you're just having a great time at this. And so Jesus tells a story very similar to this. In, uh, in Luke 14, about a man who held a great dinner party, and he invites a whole bunch of people, and it, the time to feast, you know, to really bear down on it, came, everything was ready, and he sent out the servant to tell all the invited guests that everything was ready, but they weren't ready to come. They weren't ready to come. One guy said, well, I have some real estate to take care of, and so... It's not really a good time. I can't really come right now. All right? Uh, The next guy said, well, I've invested in some livestock for the farm, and so got some important things I need to take care of, so I'm not able to make it this time. And, And another guy said, I just got married, man. You know how it is. I can't really make it right now. Well, the servant goes back and tells the host, who gets really, really angry. He doesn't like this. He has this feast, and so he rethinks it in his head. He sends the servant back out and tells them to go to the streets and the alleys of the city and invite new guests. Guess who? The poor and disabled. 
And so he did, and they came, but there was still room at the banquet feast, this awesome feast. And so the host tells him, well, just go out to the country roads. Go out to the country roads and compel people, like make them come to this great, incredible feast. And, and so he did that, and then the host said, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. They had better things to do, they don't get to enjoy the banquet. You have received an invitation to the most anticipated banquet party of eternity. It's second to none. I mean, this is like rolling out the red carpet, good, full life, best things you could ever imagine, all for you, and God is calling you to enjoy eternal life. The full celebration is in the future, but we have started the celebration already, this gathering right here as being part of that celebration, And it's coming in full steam, and it's not long till we're going to be there. It's not long, and it's amazing the excuses people come up with of why they can't make it now. You know, I've got some things I got to do first. You know, I, I really have to experience life, you know. I got some goals. I got some dreams. I got some things that I need to do, man. I've got passion for this stuff. Maybe sometime else I'll get serious about God. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis goes like this. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. When we turn from Jesus to pursue drink or sex or ambition, we are not pursuing a greater, more fulfilling life, but groveling in the refuse of the mediocrity and a short-lived pleasure. Now, did you make the connection to the story of Jesus? Who came to the banquet table? The poor and the disabled gladly came to the party. They wanted to be there. They had never eaten a banquet like that. They had never been invited to a banquet like that. They didn't have a schedule loaded with all kinds of other fantastic things. And so when they hear news of this fantastic, like invitation-only party, they say, I'm going. I have nothing better to do on Friday. I'm desperate for this party. Finally, someone has asked me to do something really amazing, and I'm going to go be part of it. This lavish grace of the host was extended to them and they were grateful and they were honored and they were humbled. All the rest of the people had better things to do and so they pursued those things and they missed out on the best. They missed out on this joy that was like unparalleled. And so John 3.16 is inviting you to come to the banquet table of God to believe in order to experience the love of the Father and eternal life, and all the other options are disappointing. They will fail you. You know they will. We all know they will. They're just distractions, very disappointing distractions from the main event. And if we pursue those, and, and, then we're going to find ourselves excluded from the best. 
You know, the question is asked, this one's for free, it's not in the notes. The question has been asked, if you could have everything that life offers you, everything was perfect, and Jesus Christ wasn't there, but you had it forever, no sickness, no pain, no tears, but Jesus wasn't there, would you take it? And uh, as I've thought through that answer, my honest answer is no, I would not take it. Not because I'm so pious, but because of this one little thought. Imagine living eternity with this incredible goodness. Everything is right there, but you knew forever that there was a better party somewhere else. Would you not have this irking pain inside of you saying, I am just not totally experiencing what I could be experiencing over there with Jesus. And so I say, you know what? Absolutely not. I don't want anywhere except where Jesus is because he is the life of the party. He is the celebration. And where he is, I want to be so that I can have the best and not struggle for eternity. And this isn't even like the hell scenario. This is like you have everything great. I still wouldn't want to be there, let alone being in eternal suffering under the condemnation and wrath of God. I hope you see the point and connection there. Isn't the desire of your heart to be as happy as you possibly can be? Isn't that what you want most? Because I do. And if you take your own happiness seriously, I beg you, I plead with you to take Jesus seriously. Because your eternal joy is at stake. John 3.16 is your only hope for eternal joy. When Jesus invites you to the party, don't be found preoccupied with all the other stuff that you think is good, that we all tend to think is good and get distracted by. Um, Leave it all to get to that party. Leave it all behind. Make sure you get into that party. Believe, church, believe. Because if you don't believe, you never will be there. But if you believe, you never, ever, 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 ever will perish but have eternal life forever. There's only one celebration, and that's where Jesus Christ is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, will never perish, but will be saved and enjoy eternal life forever. That's what's promised to you through the cross. That's what's promised to you if you just simply believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful gift of the gospel. Thank you for John 3.16. Thank you for the very clear message that we have heard this morning. And thank you for your particular love for your church, your people, your children, your bride. And thank you that there is a greater love than John 3.16 and that general universal call of the gospel. But you effectually call people to come. And they come by your irresistible grace. And they come and they enjoy. And so I pray that you call Jerusalem Church to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ. That they would have eternal life. That they would come and drink and no longer be thirsty. Thank you for this dear church. Thank you for the authority of your word. Thank you that Jesus died for us. And I pray that you activate belief in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.